0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All the hairs went up on my neck and on my arms, and I, f- I felt as if I wasn't with something. I felt briefly as if I was in that cabinet with someone. In this podcast, we're setting sail in an incredible bit of ancient kit, which quite simply has the power to take your breath away. Found by chance and rescued in the nick of time. Built with ancient techniques and astonishing skill. Strong and proud, with an amazing story to tell. The oldest known seagoing boat in the whole world. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
1: Last week, Neil, you took us to Wales to the largest known prehistoric copper mine on the planet a mine that helped power the world's Bronze Age. Where are we this week?
0: Today we're going to one of the most unmistakable uh, and instantly recognisable landmarks in the whole of the British Isles, which is to say the White Cliffs of Dover. However, we're here not to see the place, but an object, a magical artefact with amazing presence. It's called the Dover Boat. Dover is the world's busiest ferry port, uh, it's obviously for the longest time it's a very important and instantly familiar point of destination and departure for people coming and going, because it's our half of the narrowest crossing to mainland Europe, Dover Calais, everybody knows about it, and Dover has, has mattered, has been important for thousands of years at least, Okay, it's always been how people once the once the Storrega slide had happened, once we were an archipelago with with water in between us and the continent, which happened eight thousand years ago, people have had to come to us over the water, and the shortest water journey is between Calais and Dover. Okay, so, so Dover's just always been it's in, it's embedded in everybody's understanding of how to get here, and by here I mean our archipelago. Uh, so it's topped of course by dover castle uh, but, m- but much more instantly recognisable are the cliffs the white cliffs of dover probably always famous but certainly immortalised by the song you know uh, there will be bluebirds over the white cliffs of dover uh, which is uh, you know synonymous with with britain's battle against germany and the and the rest of the axis enemies during world war 2 it's hard, you know, if you imagine, you know, a, a duel between a Spitfire and a Messerschmitt, you know, in the Battle of Britain. It, you almost unconsciously you make it play out in a blue sky above the White Cliffs of Dover. It's just iconic.
1: The White Cliffs have always been an important marker,
0: haven't they? yeah for the longest time it would have been the obvious place to come to in the days of early navigation you know if you were if you were departing continental Europe uh, in, your, in your little boat and your little ship and you were intent on coming to the Long Island of Britain, you'd have been doing it by eye and so you would aim for the white cliffs because they're a, they're a landmark you know they're the easiest thing to see. And it would have been if you were if you were headed for either if you were coming here as a trader or if you were coming home, It would have been with great relief that you glimpsed the white cliffs because you knew you'd gone the right way and that that you were within within sight of land. I mean, of course, they're they're made of chalk, uh, which uh, which is underneath a lot of the southern part of the British Isles, the southern part of England. If you dig down through the grass and the soil, you hit chalk And chalk is evidence that once upon a time, the rock of which this island is made was under the sea, because chalk is laid down by little tiny organisms which have chalk in their makeup. When they die, the chalk gradually settles to the seabed. And after millions of years and trillions upon trillions of these little creatures dying and and sinking to the seabed, you end up with many metres deep of chalk. That's what chalk is. It's It's the things left behind by little dead animals. It's a it's a reminder that once the stuff of once upon a time the stuff of the British Isles was underwater. So Dover used to be called the key to, to England. You know, for for would be invaders, they wanted to get to get to Dover and start the conquest if they could of Britain from that point. You know, as recently as World War Two. Uh, you know, famously, the Battle of Britain was fought to, to stop Hitler being able to send ships across the English Channel, you know, to land in, in Dover and Kent and, and begin the invasion of Britain. And that's always been a worry for people who were in control of England. You needed to be in control of Dover. So the, the castle that's there today, Dover Castle, that was built by Henry II, King Henry II, in the 12th century, that's the 1100s. And during the Napoleonic era, and then again, during the second world war, there were, use was made of tunnels carved into the chalk. You know, p- people were, were down in the rock for safety and for, uh, and for security, you know, as part of the defense of Britain against the French and then against Germany. It's always been uh, a crucial part of Britain thinking about defending itself. You know, so, so Dover is, has, is so thick and deep with history. As a result, you know people. It's a stepping stone into these into this part of the world, and so it has some of those footprints are very deep indeed, and they and they hark back to a very distant time. And while the the broad destination for this part of the the trip is Dover, it's really about a boat, and the boat is called the Dover Boat because it was found by archaeologists in an excavation in Dover and it now resides in the Dover Museum and I, I could say really with uh, with my hand on my heart that the Dover boat is the single best archaeological artefact I have ever seen But by some way it, it's out in front by, by a considerable gap I've never forgotten it I've seen it a couple of times in the museum and it haunts my imagination. It's extraordinary. Uh, and it's it's about, uh, oh, it's three and a half thousand years old. It was made and used by people uh, about 1,500 years BC, before the birth of Christ. Okay? Now, it was found... Uh, in 1992 was the date... Uh, archaeologists had been called in because a new road, a new stretch of road was being built between Dover and Felixstowe, I think, or Folkestone. Was a new road was being built. And uh, so there was various bits of, of, of the ground had to be checked by archaeologists to see if there was anything valuable. And part of it, it was quite deep. It was going to be a, an underpass, a pedestrian underpass underneath the new road so uh, uh, quite a deep hole had been had been excavated, and archaeologists were down checking to see if there was anything of historical or archaeological value, and they found some of the usual stuff that you would expect—you know, bits of medieval t- town wall and you know bits and pieces of Roman pottery, this, the sort of thing that, that's expected, you know, in a, in a beneath a modern town in England. You generally expect to find medieval stuff and then Roman stuff and so on. So 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 far so familiar, but. Uh, it was a it was what's called a rescue excavation, which is to say they were doing it as quick as possible, because obviously the developers of the road were paying for all this, and so there's no hanging about. So they want the archaeologists to get in and get it done uh, as fast as possible. And typically, it, it so often happens on rescue excavations like that, or, or hurried excavations, just as they were coming to the end of their time, the time available, they noticed wood sticking out of a side of the of the hole. And in the rain they started, you know, checking it, realising that they were sort of working against the clock and they realised that it was ancient timber and not a, it wasn't a dead tree, it was an ancient boat that had lain, buried in the mud, in the sediment beneath the town for, as it turned out, three and a half thousand years, OK? So there's now a big, big effort has to kick in to get this thing out in, in its entirety uh, it's estimated that the actual dover boat the vessel that people had used for and they were probably using it to uh, go back and forth across the english channel or across the north sea uh, it was about 60 feet long
1: wow so big
0: considerable yeah considerable uh, made of oak uh, and it's it's what archaeologists call a sewn plank boat which is to say it's not like a, a dugout canoe, you know, where you take a tree trunk and haul it out and use that. Neither is it the more familiar idea of, of planks that have been uh, put together with wooden dowels or, or indeed rivets or nails. It's a clinker built in that familiar, you know, rowing boat style. It had been made, the, the people, the craftsmen who had fashioned this thing had brought together four huge planks of oak and they had carved them and shaped them, brought them together and then made holes all the way along and literally sewn them together with what are called withies. And that's uh, like uh, little thin branches of something flexible like willow, a a kind of material that's quite bendy. So holes are made and then you push through these these withies and then you tie or sew the boat together using the willow as a kind of thread or rope. And so this, this holds the planks in place. And obviously it's not the most effective way of making something that's watertight. you know there's gaps, and in, into the gaps you put caulking, which is it was probably like um, moss uh, and other material packed into the gaps and held there with resin you know f- obtained from other timber uh, but the thing it's in in its uh, pristine just made condition, it would always have leaked you know so you've got a, you've now got a sixty foot long vessel. Into which you can get quite a lot of people and quite a lot of cargo, but imagine taking that across the English Channel. You know, we've all seen footage of uh, of migrants and, and and asylum seekers trying to get across the English Channel in one sort of precarious craft after another, and we know so we know how dangerous potentially that crossing can be, and so imagine being in this thing that leaks anyway. So anybody that's in it and on a journey, some, quite a few people are, are, are probably sitting there with bailers of one kind or another, just constantly bailing it out you know, to keep the water from, from filling up the hull. So, but, but nonetheless, it's an amazing vessel to have. Uh, and it, 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 by its existence, uh, it, it, it makes us think about somebody who had the wherewithal and the authority to make it happen. So somebody important wanted this because he had to organise the craftspeople. He had to get the materials gathered together. And then once he had it, or she had it, uh, you, you needed. there's no evidence within the Dover boat of a mast. So they didn't sail it, they rowed it. So you've got, you've got a team of people, strong people rowing with oars. So this, this individual also had to rely on strong people that you could employ to row this vessel, back and forth, okay? So it's a considerable item. So a bit leaky, a bit precarious or not, it was an extremely valuable piece of kit. Uh, And given that it's uh, 3,500 years old, that means it was made and used during the Bronze Age. And because it's down there in the south of England, it may well have come into play for people who were transporting copper and tin back and forth, that might have been how some of the you know tin from cornwall copper from wales and elsewhere might have been part of the cargo that was back and forth along with other things like livestock uh, you know crops seeds whatever fabrics all the other things skins from animals fleeces from sheep moving back and forth across the across the water okay so having the a vessel that could let you do that that gives you great status you're now in, you're international now <laughs> You know, you're not you're not someone who's stuck on the island. You can you can come and go, and you can obtain things from far away, or bring bring people. You know, bring uh, you know the, the sort of people that want to come to to this part of the the world. You know, they, they need a it's like a ferry. So it really puts all manner of use. It's an incredible thing, and it's three and a half thousand years old. So it begs the question: Why did the archaeologists find it where they found it? You know what, what's going on there. Well, when they and it was it was the devil's own job to get it out. It was like an impacted wisdom tooth. It was really stuck in this clay mud. Rain coming down. The archaeologists had to struggle, and eventually they had to satisfy themselves with just taking half. They took about thirty feet of it out and left the other half like a broken tooth still stuck in the ground. There to this day. Okay, it's now buried deep underground under the under the new uh, motorway and even the even the bit they got out they had to they had to cut it into 10 pieces and then reassemble it in the museum and it had been stopped from uh, from you know decaying by the by the waterlogged clay in which they found it but as soon as they got it out it immediately started to dry out and it would have just turned to to dust so what they did was they they dipped the pieces in wax and then used a process that was a bit like freeze drying they freeze freeze dried it and it's now, it's basically preserved for all time. It, inside Dover Museum, where you go and see it, uh, it's in a, a kind of a, a specially built glass display room, like a big glass chamber. And inside it's specially air-conditioned and, and so that it, all the conditions are required to stop time and stop this thing from decaying. So, so they get the thing out and it's now on display, but... Once they had it out, they were able to also look at the, the, the circumstances in which it had been held for all of those thousands of years. And the archaeologists were able to see that it was in, they could see that it, it had been lying in what had once been a, a, sh- a quite shallow stream or river. They could see that, they could see the shape and it, it had been on the bottom of a shallow river. So the boat had sunk okay it had, it had ended up on the bottom of a river, and then all the intervening centuries had filled it in, and the river had dried up, and it was now just deep underground so why why did it why did it sink? Was there an accident with this with this boat? well, as it turns out, no because you can see where uh, the withies that were holding the planks together at some point they were deliberately cut through and you can see like a rope that's been cut with a sharp knife, you can see the the cuts. So it was deliberately scuttled. That's the word that's used to describe a, a ship that's been you know, deliberately sunk. So at some point, this incredibly useful 60-foot-long vessel that would transport you back and forth across to the continent, the people who owned it decided to sink it. They rowed it up a river, they got out, and they used their bronze axes and knives to cut the withies so that the water got in and it sank to the bottom of the, the river. Now, that's bonkers, isn't it? You'd say, well, why would you do? Why would you? Do? What motivates such an act? Well, in truth, we can't ever properly know. You could probably come up with as many explanations for that as there are, you know, as as there are people. It's incredibly difficult to know. But an, an abiding, a strong suggestion is that it was sacrificed. Okay? So, the people who had had it, the person who owned it, at one point after it's having been of use to him and his people, he became aware of a debt that he ought to give it back. Having had it, having had the use of it, he was now in debt to the future. Okay, now that's an important concept to have. You know, we can take concepts like the future for granted because you grew up being told about the future. But people have to arrive at those concepts for themselves at some point in the past. And so the Dover boat and the scuttling, the sacrifice of it, points at a time when people were beginning to think that by surrendering items of value now, they might be rewarded by the future when the future arrived. They could conceive of the future being another world that was travelling towards them through time. And an idea had developed whereby people felt that if they gave up important things, the future might be kind to them so that when it arrived it would reward them so so this might explain why we find dropped into rivers and and lakes valuable things from the past like like swords and jewelry all kinds of items even to this day people put coins in wishing wells in the hope that by doing that they'll get luck it's a very very old idea and always almost always when we find the knives and the swords and spearheads and the jewelry before it was deposited into the into the, the the bog or into the river or into the lake they've usually been bent and broken so there's a there's a process by which right we as people we've had use of this item for long enough now it becomes the property of the future or the property of the gods and so they they, they make it they put it beyond the use of people by breaking it and from and then they let it go and from that point on it belongs to someone else so, likewise, with the Dover boat, it wasn't it wasn't enough just to leave it by the side of the river. They had to destroy it, put it beyond human use so that that it then made the kind of transition into the into the world of the gods or the world of the ancestors or the world of the future. So this is what the Dover boat represents. I was allowed into the glass box. Okay. You, normally, generally speaking, you look at it from outside, but you know because of the kind of job that I've been doing, I get in amongst these things, get to touch them, and by looking at the wooden planks, you can see the evidence of its making. You can see where sharp axes and whatever have been used to make the to shape the oak planks, and you can see how the the withies, these these bits of willow sapling, have been, you know, pushed through these holes and 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 fixed and tied in knots. You can see the process of, of how the thing was made three and a half thousand years ago. And then of course you can see where it was you can see where the wides were cut. So you can see people deciding, right, now's the time, this is the moment. And maybe all at once, maybe they surrounded it. All the warriors maybe with a sharp knife in their hands, and all in a all in a moment they said, right, one, two, three And they cut it as though as though putting it to death. As though they were as though they were cutting its throat. Ending its life And then they would have stepped back from it as, the, as those planks kind of separated And the water filled it from below And then they would have watched it Disappear out of sight Gone forever And there it, there it lay You know it, for a while it was in a river And then something happened and the river Silted up and became just mud And then more passage of time And then it was eventually Buried beneath Roman Dover Then medieval Dover All the periods of history that we think about came and went. And and then modern Dover came. And all all the while that's been happening, All all the kings and queens, all the empires, all the wars, all the happiness and suffering, all the joy, all that's happened while that boat was lying there, waiting, sleeping, lying where it had been sent three and a half thousand years ago. And then in 1992, some people stumble across it. And it comes back into the world, but if you go and see it, you can sense all of that. And I swear to you, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a modern, sensible, rational person. But when I was in the glass box with it, all the hairs went up on my neck and on my arms, and I, f- I felt as if I wasn't just in that cabinet with something. I felt briefly as if I was in that cabinet with someone. I felt that there was someone there. And I almost expected to be haunted. I almost expected to hear a voice or to see. Because the thinking of the people was so present in that space. It meant that the people were almost there. The people who had thought those thoughts performed those acts. Because the evidence of what they had done was so visible. It, it felt as though they had done it 30 seconds before I stepped into the space. It Very, very strange. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget being in that glass room with that boat. It's an extraordinary thing.
1: So well preserved you can actually see the marks the Bronze Age shipbuilders were making. Oh. But is there enough of it left that you can actually tell it's a
0: boat? Yes, it has the shape of a canoe. It's long and thin. And the space inside for sitting in or for putting in cargo is is relatively shallow. So think of a think of a like a long boat, like a canal boat or, or a big canoe. And it's four long planks of oak, four huge pieces of timber that have been brought, two on each side, and meeting in a kind of a shallow V shape. It doesn't have a keel, it just the four meet, and then it's all been sewn together all the way along by these sort of big looping stitches of willow. And you can see that, it, obviously because it was in the ground for such a long time, it's stained, It's it's a dark, it almost looks like polished black metal. It's very, very dark. But that's the only difference. You can still see that it's timber, and you can still see the the willow, and you can, you know what you're looking at. It's just that it's it's um, it has been stained darkly by the by the mud and the clay and the sediment that it's been that have preserved it for all of those thousands of years, and also part of the the, the conservation process has, has probably added to that effect. So it's it, it looks slightly otherworldly, uh, and it it just. Carries like an invisible cargo all of the thought that went into it. You know, if, if you look at it for long enough, gradually you realize you, per, you can perceive what you're looking at. The cut ends, the, the marks in the wood of, of it being carved into shape with, with sharp knives and with axes and adzes, that, you know, by craftsmen, shipbuilders. I mean, it's a product of shipbuilders three and a half thousand years ago. You know, that, that have made this thing and you can see it and that's it's all there kind of carried within it. The, the Dover boat still has a, an invisible cargo and it's a cargo of, of the imagination and the creativity and all the thoughts of the people that made it, used it and then eventually thought that well, the time's come. We have, to, we have to give this back. And I'm, I'm, I'm haunted by how old or how long ago people began accepting that they couldn't just keep on taking and having, that there's a price. People, for whatever reason, they obviously became preoccupied by the thought that we've got this, but what if something... What if we don't deserve it? And and what if we take too much... What if we take too much tin or too much copper or gold and and we run out? You know, what if there comes a year when the crops just don't grow? Or there is no more flint? Or there is no more metal? Or what if the sea comes and it takes away the land, like at Canterbury, Gwylod, Or as you see at Haysborough, where the million-year-old footprints are? People had a long understanding that from time to time things got taken away. And it, it, it's almost as though it began to prey on everyone's mind. What can we do? Are we impotent in the face of the inevitable? Or are there things that we could be doing, ways we could be living, behaviours we could adopt that might affect the future? That's an amazing thought to, to think that if I do something now, the future might be better. That if I do something good, if I if I sacrifice something of great value to me, the future might notice and remember, so that when it arrives, it will be good to me. And if it's not good to me, it might be good to my children or my grandchildren. That's an inc- and I find that haunting. You know, we're you know with things like you know extinction, rebellion, people worried about climate change and sea levels rising and global warming, and people have this angry sense that that. Someone somewhere has done something wrong and we're going to be punished for it. That, that feeling is there. We've, we've made a mess. We've taken too much, we've burnt too much oil, we've borrowed out too much coal. And now look what's happened. Now there's a, now there's a reckoning. you know a lot of people feel that there's a reckoning that someone's come to settle the account and it's na- it's nature herself has come to settle the account. And what are we going to lose? What's going to be taken from us? And that's an, that's just the continuation of a worry and anxiety that some people have had for a very, very long time. What can we do? What can we do now to make then better?
1: So these ancient ancestors of ours were thinking about the future and their place in it. They were working together and setting up sophisticated trading routes and commerce. It was four and a half thousand years ago, but it doesn't feel that different from today.
0: Ah, and they were doing it in the same place. <laughs> you know, they, they were. We're still even in, even in the twenty first century with um, with with Amazon and, and you know, and online shopping and all the rest of it. The bulk of the things that we need here, they still come in through Dover. It's where most people come and go from. And the, and the other ports that are basically around that tail end of England, that's still where the boats come in. You know, that, that, the importance for the same reason has never gone away. And, the, and you know, and the roads, so many of the, of the roads that, that we use today in Britain, up and down the spine of England, the road that goes into the roads that go into Scotland, the roads that go into Wales. you know in a lot of cases they're on top of Roman roads or they're following the same line as Roman roads. and that's 2000 years ago. But, the, but but the fact is the Roman roads were following ways, tracks that were already ancient. That was already the way north. that was already the way west. You know, all, all we have done, or, or all that anyone has done in the intervening centuries and millennia is come up with a, a more modern version of the same thing. And lo and behold, the Dover boat, which is uh, it's actually physically in the same location as the world's busiest ferry port. Well, three and a half thousand years ago, there was a ferry, if you like, made out of oak, sewn together with willow withies and the people had it and used it for the same thing getting across to France bringing something back (laughs) it's amazing
1: it's extraordinary when you talk about the layers of history hidden beneath our cities and our feet and we find this the oldest known seafaring boat ever discovered in the world but it could so easily have been missed
0: yes Yes, it was purely by chance. no one was looking for it. No one had any reason to expect it was there, and it was it was coming right at the end of a of a long and you know frankly quite uninspiring archaeological rescue dig that hadn't really found anything that of any great surprise and then lo and behold, just as the dig was winding up, somebody said, "Oh hey ho, there's a bit of wood over there. Let's have a look at that. We could have missed it, yeah." Yeah, and it's so. You're, and there would have been many vessels like it you know it's important not to think that it was the only one that one has come up by chance in that location well likewise at that time there would have been other vessels of a similar design plying back and forth across the channel uh, bringing cargoes of uh, valuable things valuable people uh, and it was just that's just the one that, that we accidentally discovered It might be the only one we ever find. But it stands for all the others that we haven't found.
1: But they had to leave half the boat behind. Couldn't the road have been paused to allow the whole
0: excavation? Too difficult. It it, it was going to involve bringing in all sorts of other machinery. Uh, We we were lucky to get out what we got. Really? Don't be a a glasses half empty about this. Be glasses half full. (laughs) It's humbling and breathtaking and just awe-inspiring.
1: How is it that objects like this have the power to take us right back to the Bronze Age?
0: It's almost like a a paradox that on the one hand we talked in another uh, podcast about the little bit of horse rib bone that was found in in Robin Hood's cave in Crestwell Crags It's tiny, it's like three or four inches long but it has on it this beautiful little engraving of a horse's head and it's plunging forelegs Um, And So on the one hand You've got a tiny little Artifact with a horse on it But what it really is What has really been preserved And what has survived for Well in the case of that little bit of bone You know, maybe 10, 12 13,000 years Is thought There's nothing more Fleeting and momentary Than a thought An idea And you wouldn't expect an idea to be preserved like a flint tool or a a bone or a wooden boat. So the magnetic force that's really kept me fascinated by archeology span is not that you find a rib bone with a horse's head on it or or a boat. It's the fact that by holding that in your hand or looking at it or being in the presence of it, you realize that what's really been preserved is the way that people thought. The artist, the man or the woman, had to think that up, had to find the bit of bone, he polished the surface till it was smooth and clean, selected a tool, thought about what he or she was going to draw, and then drew it. So, and that's all, the, oh, that's all preserved. Someone thought it up. And on a bigger scale... But not more or less important, the Dover boat shows you people thinking. We want to get from here to there. How are we going to do it? And I don't want it to just be something that can take you or just me. I want it to be something that's big. I want to bring back lots of stuff or I want to take lots of people. And then, so you you can see all of that. And then then you, you, you find that they deliberately destroyed it they unmade it. Having made it and used it, they then unmade it. And you see that because they cut the, they cut the withies and they, they let it fall apart and they watched it sink. All of that, that's activity spread out possibly across years. You know, let's imagine the thing was maybe in use for 20 years. Well, that's all there. What's amazing to me is that individual artefacts carry all of that. That thought, the most fleeting, the most ephemeral thing you can imagine, you can find it in a hole in the ground. You can excavate and find and keep thought. I find that extraordinary.
1: And today when you go to Dover to catch the ferry to France, if you go via the museum, you'd be able to see how our ancestors did it four and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. Then go and hop on your ferry.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds sounds ridiculous, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, in the presence of certain things, Mm. in as much as it will ever be possible, you can time travel. You know, to me, you know, people make up movies and tell stories about travelling through time, and it may or may not be possible, who knows? Depending on which physicist you listen to... But, but you can do a version of it because it, if you go to the Dover boat, thoughts that people had three and a half thousand years ago are still in the room. What more do you want? A magical dark Blake home to ritual, ceremony, and to an ancient way of life. A time when an elite group of thinkers wielded power and influence right across the British Isles to Gaul and beyond. Our ancestors' wisdom and reflections of another world brought to life by an incredible hoard of treasure. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles, check out my Instagram account Neil Oliver Love Letter and to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live don't forget to subscribe write a review and share with your friends for further reading about these favourite destinations of mine you could try my book it's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music is the work of Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. All of the additional research was conducted by Evie, Lucien, Archie and Teddy. Finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production was the effort of Althorpe Studios. The photography is by Neil R. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF podcast production.